You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story. Offering insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma. A former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma. Stories that offer entertaining escape as well as insightful inspiration for the journey. This week's episode is a special one, giving you the first few chapters of episode one in story season one from my End Times Chronicles sci-fi series. Hey, Religious Fiction readers, this is episode 15 of the Religion and Fiction podcast. And as I mentioned in the introduction, I've got a special treat for you this episode. This week, we're taking a break from my commentary on the intersection of the sacred and story to give you, as I said, the first few chapters of the digitally narrated version of Episode 1 of Story Season 1 in my End Times Chronicles sci-fi series called Apostasy Rising. That's the title of Book 1, Story Season 1, in a three-book literary show, if you will. We all are pretty familiar with the concept of binge-watching, right? Where you drill down into your favorite Netflix or Hulu or HBO season and just bam, 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 work through all the episodes. And a few years ago, I designed a similar method of delivering a story by giving readers four complete books Over the course of four months, complete stories with sort of a cliffhanger leading into the next book, the first story season in End Times Chronicles, called Apostasy Rising, which came out in 2019 as sort of a lead up into the events that begin to unfold in season two, called Apocalypse Rising. And guess what? Very soon, I am ready to launch the last story season called Antichrist Rising. And as you can imagine, we are going to be living through, imaginatively, the final events of the book of Revelation, giving readers a chance to get a glimpse into what it would be like as Christians, and even non-Christians, to experience the end times. A hundred years out into the future, with all of the struggle to survive and the call to persevere in the faith unto the very end when Christ returns for his church. Because I'm launching this as a Kickstarter campaign, probably next week, with a whole bunch of goodies, including mega discounts on the 12-book series and some end-time swag, I thought that I would give you in this podcast the first few chapters from Episode 1 of Story Season 1, Apostasy Rising. The Kickstarter is my third campaign, and I'm super excited to introduce this story saga of 12 books to new readers, and to give existing readers of the series the final story season ending the events of the book of Revelation. 
You'll be able to get ebooks and print books, both paperback and signed exclusive hardcovers, as well as audiobooks. And this is a sample of the digitally narrated audiobook that will be available thanks to Google Artificial Intelligence. I ran, I think it was a short story from my Order of Thaddeus series a few episodes ago, and I thought that I would give you a taste of this series as well in this episode with a few chapters of the audiobook. So enjoy and get all the details to the Kickstarter at www.endtimesworld.com. Look for details about this Kickstarter campaign for End Times Chronicles in the show notes. Be sure to follow that campaign now, and once it launches, you'll get alerted and notified so that you can get in on the Kickstarter fun. Until then, enjoy the story. Apostasy Rising End Times Chronicles Season 1, Episode 1 Written by J.A. Bauma Digitally narrated by Google Artificial Intelligence. Chapter 1. Tripolitania, AD 2123. Deep in the soil of ancient Tripolitania lies the ruins of ancient Christianity. The Apostle Mark was born here, the one whose gospel bears his namesake. As was the early church father Tertullian, who cut his chops on its dry, hardened beige soil before pastoring in Carthage and battling heretics by pen's might. The blood of Christian martyrs slaughtered at the swords of ancient and modern foes alike has flown thick with mayhem and memory on these lands, bodies laid buried along with the buildings in which they used to live and worship. It is this soil that Alexander Zaruk has faithfully tilled and cultivated for the past few years in his small parish overlooking the Mediterranean. Though most of the ancient ruins that testify to that ancient faith lay submerged under its darkened waters, a sort of catacomb of eternal veneration to the midwives of the church after having been consumed in the past century by rising seas, Alexander was lucky enough to have received a parish assignment that charged him with caretaking one of the remaining edifices still standing from that ill-forgotten era, a beacon of hope for the faithful in a grim world crushed by the wickedness and cruelty of humanity, both the paupers and propers in its ranks. A chord of cascading and descending notes thrummed gently throughout Alexander's bedroom, joined by a chorus of trumpeter finches nesting outside his open window, greeting the dawn with delight. He groaned at both sounds, feeling miles away from joining in their happiness. He commanded his AI assistant Barnabas to snooze the alarm, then flopped over onto his side, his back to the window filtering the early morning sunlight. As he returned to dreamland, he cursed himself for sleeping in well past his normal waking hour. But after a night of restless sleep, he mustered up a modicum of grace for himself. The familiar chords returned nine minutes later, but this time he sat up, reaching for his handkerchief resting on his nightstand. The torrential downpour brought on by the season's westerly winds combined with an unseasonable head cold, had done little to help his slumber or his sinuses. The cyclonic storms gave way to a thick sticky morning punctuated by strong rays of sun. He blew his nose that was just as thick and sneezed into the well-used cloth, then blew one more time for good measure. He leaned back into his bed again, closed his eyes, and let out another moan before crossing himself. It was going to be one of those days. Father Zaruk, as he was known to his people in town, finally eased out of bed and shuffled over to his closet to change into his day clothes, the cold tiles from the climate-controlled dwelling sending a shiver through his feet and up his spine. 
He sloughed off his t-shirt and linen pants and put on a loose linen shirt and equally loose pants, the traditional garb of North Elkibulanan men stretching back millennia. He slipped in his clerical collar around his neck, then checked himself in the mirror. While the centuries had brought massive changes to the continent, the change in clothing styles wasn't one of them. Same for the ancient rituals of the Church of Tripolitania. Stretching back to the early church, such rituals consisted of fixed-hour prayers combined with confession and scripture reading. The priest readied himself for a day filled with all three, beginning with himself. Still foggy from a lack of sleep and an overactive nose, Alexander left his modest yet ultramodern dwelling to make his way into his pride and joy. Leaving behind his parish quarters at the start of each day for morning prayers inside his church, it was as if he traveled back in time two thousand years. His small one-level home, a gleaming brushed steel and curved glass abode that bespoke the advancements of human civilization, stood in stark contrast to the pale structure of stone pockmarked by centuries of conflict and decay still standing proud atop the bluff overlooking the Mediterranean. It was one of the few buildings fortunate enough to have been placed on higher ground, avoiding the fate of Poseidon's clutches when the seas rose. Alexander hummed an ancient tune to himself as he shuffled along the short soggy path from his home to his beloved parish. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. A smile curled upward as he continued humming the nearly 400-year-old tune penned by a simple Methodist minister from Nor Americana, thankful for the truth of its words originally found in the Book of Lamentations, because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. The priest reached the front entrance to his parish, blowing into his handkerchief again. He crossed himself before entering, thanking the good Lord above that his mercies were indeed renewed each morning. He just hoped that day those mercies would extend to his nose as well. He grasped the burnished bronze handle and heaved open the sturdy wooden door, the smell of damp stone and even damper wood escaping Alexander's senses as he walked into the great hall. His breath still caught in his chest at the sight of the holy space, marveling that it was he who got to caretake it and its people, and drinking in the majesty and wonder that was but a pale reflection of heaven itself. Gleaming titanium columns stretched up toward the heavens, carved with laser-cut vines and whorls of flowers along its polished sheen, a reinforcement that added both an artistic and structural layer to the modest millennium-year-old cathedral. Windows of red and green and blue stained glass arranged in panels, telling the story of Christ's death through the stations of the cross, were arrayed on either side of the vast hall. A massive circular window anchored the front above the high altar, depicting the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit, looking down with approval and love. Above, Seraphim floated amongst a sea of clouds stretching the length of the ceiling, its paint flaking from years of neglect. As he soaked in the view, Alexander noticed a large darkened pattern spreading from a point above the altar, and his young assistant standing underneath it. Father Zaruk huffed and returned to the chorus of the ancient hymn of the faith, his cloth shoes whispering across the beige stone tiles stretching the nave, as he hummed and hustled down the center aisle, making his way toward the small chapel off to the right. He approached his assistant, Deacon Zachariah, gazing into the ceiling while jostling a large aluminum bucket, moving it this way and that. Is that blasted thing leaking again, Alexander complained, his curse echoing throughout the vast space. Afraid so, father. And leaked. Past tense. While much of the ancient structure had been renovated and reinforced over the centuries to preserve this testament to the staying power of the Christian faith, born in the soil of North Elkibulana, 
the roof had proven troublesome for generations of priests, including his own father. As he approached the front, Alexander could see water still trickling from the ceiling down toward a massive stain darkening the ancient floor beneath, the remnants of a night's worth of dirty rain water stained brown from the pitched roof. I tell you what, Zachariah, Alexander said, planting his hands on his hips and following his assistant's gaze. After my morning prayers, how about you and I set the roof on fire and sip tea from my porch, whilst watching the blasted thing burn to the ground? Zachariah smiled as he grabbed a mop from the floor to continue his cleanup work. Yes, father. Alexander went to leave but stopped and sighed. How many times do I have to tell you to drop the father routine? Alexander is fine. I'm barely a decade older than you. We're peers, partners in ministry. My father was father, not me. The man nodded and smiled, white teeth gleaming behind his dark face. Yes, sir. And no, sir, either, Alexander huffed as he continued toward the chapel. Sir Air Alexander, Zechariah called. Did you see the troubling news this morning? Father Zaruk stopped short and turned around. Zechariah, what did I tell you? Never give a priest bad news before his morning prayers. Sorry but you'll want to check with Divinet when you're finished. He waved him off and turned back around. Yes alright. Thanks for the warning. And thanks for cleaning up and making our sanctuary presentable to God again. Alexander continued walking toward the chapel and shouted, though it seems like he reneged on his rainbow promise after last night's deluge. Another yes father echoed through the narrow stone hallway behind him, eliciting a chuckle from the priest. Until Zachariah Mawanyani arrived a year ago, Alexander was about to throw in the towel. Shepherding Christ's people was a lonely, tiresome task made all the more burdensome by the increased pressures to conform to the pattern of this world. Doubts needled him nearly every day about the future survival of Ichthus, the remnant of Christianity in these last days, the designation taken from the ancient identifying symbol of the Church and turned into a curse by the ultramodern world. Then there were the doubts about faith itself clawing at his soul, the questions begging for answers in a world that boasted of peace, prosperity and progress, yet left little room for traditional spirituality. And when his father died so tragically, so ghastly, he didn't know how he could go on anymore tending to a profession the man had strong-armed him into pursuing in the first place. The pain of his death and all the confusion and questions surrounding it was too much to bear. Then Zachariah was sent to him as a deacon, to help him bear his load. The man was a welcomed presence of calm, a refuge in the midst of an impending storm looming on the church's horizon, much less his own heart. He reached the door to the small chapel and thanked the good Lord for gifting him Zachariah's companionship, then pushed through for his morning ritual. Though later than his normal 6 a.m. prayer session, he was just past the 9 o'clock hour that his spiritual discipline required. The daily office, the ancient spiritual practice of praying at fixed hours throughout the day, had been a staple of Alexander's life rhythm since discovering it during his university days at Oxford. He found it to be a grounding, centering practice, amidst the trappings of ultramodernity. He often imagined the ancient fathers of his faith kneeling where he himself knelt, hands outstretched in petition before God, Bible open to the morning reading. This morning was no different, especially given the shifting currents rippling through Ichthus the past year. Alexander drained his nose in his handkerchief before kneeling on the well-worn dull red kneeling pillow his father had given him at his ordination, a lasting testimony to his father's influence before his death. 
he folded his hands and propped his elbows on the narrow wooden ledge, forming a half-circle in front of a large icon anchored to the stone wall depicting Christ the giver of life, surrounded by candles on the floor. He stared forward at the gleaming portrait of a bearded Jesus set against gold gilding, the man wrapped in an indigo robe holding a jewel-studded book of the gospel in his left hand, his right hand fingers bent in the Greek letters of his name. A smile curled at one end of his mouth as he gazed into the ancient religious portrait, sensing the invitation to taste and see that the Lord Jesus Christ is good. Most merciful God, Alexander began, eyes closed and palms raised upward, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what I have done, and by what I have left undone. I have not loved you with my whole heart, I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I am truly sorry, and I humbly repent. For the sake of your Son Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and forgive me, that I may delight in your will, and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, Alexander continued, making the sign of the cross from his forehead to mid-chest from left shoulder to right. As it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. He continued tracing the steps of this ancient practice through the prayer book given to him by his college mentor and godfather, Father James Ferraro, the binding having been stitched back together with care over the last decade. Alexander was 18 when he entered Oxford at the urging of his father. Father Jim had immediately taken him under his wing as a favor to his old friend, and in fulfilling his duties as godfather, helping him navigate his new life and encouraging him to pursue a life dedicated to the church. Alexander would spend as much time as a medical doctor in academic and practical training before being ordained and called to his parish back home in Tripolitania, in the ancient region of Libya, the northern province of Elkibulana, the name of the continent previously known as Africa, before the Great Reckoning unified all continental nation-states under the Commonwealth banner of this ancient indigenous name. After reciting the Venet, Alexander turned to his morning lesson in the ancient Christian book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. He read aloud, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, he read aloud, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Timely Alexander paused, thinking about the other day's news he had received from fellow parishes just outside of Tripoli, one in a series of horrifying news events rocking Christ's church. Several parishes had gone underground last year, when the largest church was destroyed in a well-planned attack, designed to bring ultimate devastation and ultimate shock to one of the strongest groups of Christians in northern Elkibulana. The building had been rigged with explosives like a demolition company might rig a dilapidated building, in order to make way for a new apartment complex. During Sunday worship, the time charges exploded in one gigantic, unified horrifying bloom of destruction, bringing the whole structure down at once. Hundreds of women, children and men died amidst the twisted metal and chunks of concrete that bore witness to the prayers of the dying faithful. As if last year's act of terror wasn't enough, just last week a series of bombs, this time by the hands of suicide bombers, had exploded in synchronized mayhem among several of those underground church parishes meeting in homes throughout the area. The event had shaken Ichthus to its core worldwide. Persecution had become fierce in several regions throughout the world across Solterra Republic, but nothing to this degree of coordination and espionage. And just two days ago, Alexander had been warned of a coming wave of affliction making its way across Tripolitania. 
he shook his head at the thought and continued reading. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just, He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. May it be so, he thought to himself, for my poor Elkibulanan brothers and sisters. The priest felt guilty for desiring such judgment upon the heads of those who blew themselves up in the name of their god, or government. But he also felt fear. He knew he shouldn't, that he should face such trouble and terror with the kind of steely perseverance Paul spoke of in his letter to Christians undergoing the same threat. Yet even as he remembered last week's tragedy, the pages of his New Testament began to flutter from his shaking hand. He clenched the holy book tight to stop his tremor, cursing his weakness, wondering what his father would think of him. What he was thinking of him from beyond the grave. The final words of his morning reading struck a chord deep within Alexander, cutting to his core. With this in mind, he read aloud again, We constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by His power He may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Alexander mouthed in convicted silence, have mercy on me a sinner. Make me worthy of your calling, whether as priest or martyr. Whichever you choose. Amen. He crossed himself and rose from his prayer pillow, head still foggy from his cold, and now swimming from Paul's words about the future that might not be too far off. He exited through the back door and back out into the still waking world beyond, to return to his parish home for the news Zachariah said awaited him from One World News on Divinet. A gentle breeze gusted off his beloved sea and up the bluff to Alexander's parish life. He stood behind a lush hedgerow budding with pink and white flowers making an attempt to breathe in its salty goodness a taste of it falling on his lips along with the lilies blooming below the cliff. He spied several boats already harvesting fish from its waters, sleek and shiny large metal pods of ultramodern sophistication and efficiency skimming along the surface. Long gone were the days of nets and traps, replaced by vessels that hoovered up the sea's living creatures in earnest. Streams of hydro waste streamed out the back of the vessels, glittering in the brilliant morning sun, and offering a hint of the rainbow the good Lord above set in place to promise he'd stay his hand from destroying the earth with such oceanic fury. Tell that to the millions who have perished and been displaced across the century from the rising tides, Alexander scoffed, folding his arms. He chided himself at his blasphemy, knowing the whole of creation has been groaning in labor pains under the weight of human rebellion, as the Apostle Paul taught, patiently awaiting the return of Jesus Christ to put the whole blasted world back together again. He just wondered what the heck was taking him so long. And sometimes he wondered whether he would return at all, whether the whole thing would go down in a fiery, furious show of galactic Armageddon. Perhaps an asteroid, or a long-hidden race of aliens. Alexander sighed and cursed himself again for his unbelief. He turned toward his parish home when he caught light glinting off something over the sea. He stepped toward the hedgerow and squinted in the distance, 
catching a glance of a tracker drone buzzing the starboard bow of the fishing boat below. The One World governing body insisted that such devices were for humanity, as the Solterra Republic motto went. But he and the world knew better. Anything Solterra did was for the Republic. What's the Republic up to this fine day? He sneered, blowing his nose again. He watched the black orb circle back around the boat. Then it zipped up far into the sky and began growing in size, looking as though it was heading toward the shore. His shore. The black dot grew quickly as it approached the bluff. He crouched low, trying to evade its sensors. Between the foliage, Alexander saw the matte black orb dart left before quickly ascending the bluff and mounting the air surrounding his cathedral. What in God's name, he whispered, his heart thrumming against his ribs and the coppery taste of adrenaline overpowering his tongue. He continued crouching, then inched his way over to a fig tree along the path, watching the drone circle the building once, then again, before slipping behind its western flank out of view. The thrumming intensified, as did his breathing, matching the familiar pulsating whine of Solterra's drone. They said such units were for maintaining a secure, harmonious, united republic. But he knew better, fear welling within at the sight. Before long, the whine faded beneath the background noise of the Mediterranean's lapping waves below. Alexander squinted and strained for a sign of the drone's presence. Finding none, he sighed with a mixture of relief and concern. He considered this omen, wondering what it might mean for his parish. What it would mean for him. Chapter 2 Alexander stood, brushing dirt and grass off the knees of his linen pants, feeling foolish for crouching behind a tree like a child, even if it was the security apparatus of the Republic. He stole a glance at his parish searching the sky for the dark menace, then turned toward his home. He hustled along the length of the bluff, having no interest in tarrying while a Solterra tracker drone was circling the skies, blowing his nose along the way. He chanced a brief stop to pick a handful of large pomegranate blossoms that lined the path, trying to breathe in their goodness in order to erase the memory of the uninvited guest. It was no use, his congestion proving mightier than the pollen. As he approached his quarters the door opened with a whoosh, closing and locking behind him. His parish home was more like an apartment small and sparsely furnished in accordance with his pledge of poverty. Perhaps poverty was a bit overstated, for it was well appointed and comfortable to his tastes. Give me a bed, a loaf of bread, a library of books and I'll be happy as a hyena, he would say. And perhaps a wine with a backbone. As a side hobby, Alexander had taken up the delicate trade of vinification, producing a praiseworthy vintage of wine using the fruit his pomegranate bushes grew on the parish property. So yes, a pledge of poverty since teetotalism. Barnabas, Alexander called out to his AI home assistant as he reached for a vase, I've got a cold. And what pray tell would you like me to do about that, Father Zaruk? a voice inquired back. The priest rolled his eyes and shouted, Raise the temperature you blasted contraption. Don't get snippy, Father. Would 24 degrees Celsius suffice? Snippy. That'll do. He brought the flowers and vase over to a table that curved down to the floor on two sides in a single sheet of glass, a headache now beginning to needle the bridge of his nose. As he arranged them, he noticed his divinet slate resting next to an empty wine glass stained red at the bottom from the night before. When he finished, he picked up the thin sheet of sapphire crystal the size and thickness of a sheet of paper, yet as strong and stiff as steel, courtesy of Solterra Republic, the worldwide governing body of United Nations, provinces and people groups. 
After the reckoning, Solterra required that such devices be given to every citizen of the world for the purpose of information free flow. That's what they said, anyway. But as with the drones, most people knew better, believing they were much more about informing the Republic about its citizens than the other way around. A holographic globe of the prehistoric Pangaea supercontinent surrounded by olive branches rotated on the face of the glass device. A blinking newspaper, an anachronism from bygone centuries, begged for his attention, alerting him to breaking news. After preparing himself a cup of green tea, Alexander touched the flashing logo. The device instantly came to life, displaying several stories carefully curated by the Republic and AI algorithms, based on Alexander's own interests, though it was unclear which had more priority and authority. The first story made Alexander nearly drop his mug. Sasha! Father Zaruk exclaimed. He set his tea down and grasped the sleek, thin surface with both hands, staring at a smiling animated picture of his college roommate and friend. Sasha Pavlovich and Alexander had been roommates at Oxford. They instantly hit it off, particularly since in the old Ukrainian dialect Sasha translated as Alexander. He hailed from Lutsk in the Ukrainsky province of Vostokana, the nation that was now comprised of former Eastern European nations that existed independently before the reckoning. Sasha had gone to university on a physics scholarship thanks to his government, while Alexander studied theology and religion thanks to his father. The two were close and continued rooming together through their respective graduate work, before Sasha went to the University of Kiev for his doctorate in theoretical physics and mathematics. They stayed in touch as best they could, and now Alexander was reading a headline story about a wildly peculiar discovery his friend had apparently made. Vostokanin physicist discovers time travel, the headline blazed across the top. Alexander's mouth literally dropped open as he read the lead. Though the stuff of science fiction stretching back a century before the reckoning, a physicist at the University of Kiev in the Ukrainsky province of Vostokana has discovered what he and his researchers are calling time travel. Through a series of experiments utilizing state-of-the-art electronic wave emitters and particle colliders, the team of mostly Vostokanin scientists, aided by three other physicists from the nation of California, have seemingly cracked the space-time continuum. Well, I'll be Sasha. Alexander marveled as he continued reading, surprised to see a quote from his college roommate himself. This is a marvelous achievement of the highest caliber of Ukrainsky scientists. Ever a nationalist, Alexander thought, noting Sasha's lack of acknowledgement of the other nation's contributors. He continued reading. The team of researchers reiterated that their findings were only preliminary and at the beginning stages of what they hope can be utilized for mainstream purposes, which at this time is undetermined. Until that day, while the science of real-time travel is no longer fiction, the practical application of it still is. A smile spread across Alexander's face as he recalled his Ukrainsky friend chewing his ear off late at night with his wild theories about time and the relativity of our movement around the sun. The fourth dimension he called it, theorizing that every three-dimensional object in space encompassed length, width, depth, and a fourth dimension he called phase. Sasha theorized that every object from beginning of time to the end of time also took up some sort of phase or point of advancement in time, as much as it did length, width and depth in a given space. The physics of it all went completely over his head. At some point during Sasha's ramblings, Alexander usually threw one of his socks at him to get him to stop his nonsense. 
but Sasha vowed he would one day discover the fourth dimension and how it worked, and thus time travel. And you have, my old friend. You have. Alexander shook his head and stared back at yet another blinking newspaper begging for his attention. He tapped it, transforming it into a live feed video window. From the major world religions are gathering for a momentous unveiling that has been shrouded in secrecy until just moments ago. He grabbed the device in one hand while holding his mug of tea in the other, taking sips between breaths. A blonde woman continued her correspondence live from the inside of a large chamber somewhere in the world. One World News has it from inside sources that the dominant religious faiths are signing an accord of religious disaffiliation in order to affiliate as something called Pan-Ligo World Assembly. Alexander's mug smashed to the ground in an ear-splitting crash, sending steaming tea down his cream-colored cotton trousers and across his tiled floor. Ah, he cried out, nearly sending his slate to the same fate as his precious mug. It can't be, Alexander whispered as he stared at yet another of his former classmates making headlines. Apollos Nikolai strode behind a small contingent of Christian leaders who were joined by Mohammedans, Buddhists, Hinduans, Israelites, even Elkibulanists, the religious designation of ancient tribal religions of the former African continent of witches, healers, spiritualists, and sorcerers. After the reckoning, religions as well as nations were realigned by the world body. They were tolerated by Solterra only insofar as they provided peace and stability particularly in an effort to unify the disparate tribes scattered over the massive land, in quell centuries of rebellion and war, the Republic granted former African animistic spiritualities religious representation under the umbrella name Elkibulanists. Such a designation angered the Mohammedans who had spent centuries spreading the teachings and ways of Muhammad across the great continent, though the move created a two-decade-long peace the world had not seen in generations. The church had experienced the same realignment while growing weaker and more imperiled. Ever since the reckoning and the establishment of Solterra, the Republic of Assembled Nation-States cobbled together and brokered in the aftermath from the disasters of climate change that had ravaged the world, and fallout from decades of civil wars and conflict, life as a follower of Jesus Christ had become tenuous. It's why the religion had become designated as Ichthus at the turn of the century a throwback to the ancient symbol of the earliest Christians when it was struggling under the weight of Empire Rome. The word had become a derogatory curse across the world the past few decades as Christian brothers and sisters were forced to resurrect the symbol through the superheated fires of persecution through much of sub-Saharan Elkibulana, across all of Asiatica, in parts of Americana, Noramericana, Louisiana, Cascadia, and California, and even in Mexicana, just as the earliest Christians themselves had created the symbolic word in the first place during imperial persecution throughout the Roman Empire. The early church had identified friend from foe using two simple arcing lines that intersected at one end, mirroring one another to form a fish. In later centuries, ichthus, the Greek word for the aquatic being, became known as the Jesus fish. Since the reckoning, it had been adopted as a banner of pride to separate the remnant of Christianity from the rest of the world religions by adopting the culture's curse and re-identifying with its central figure and beliefs formed as an acrostic with its letters, Jesus I, the anointed Christ, C-H, Son U, of God, T-H, our Savior, S. Ichthus. Now it seemed some in the church were seeking to abandon this name entirely. After cooling his tea-singed leg, Alexander focused back at the news event breaking on his slate. Yes, that's right. 
I said pan ligo, which takes the root of the word for religion, meaning to bind, and combines it with pan, meaning all. The organizers of the new alternative spiritual movement Pan Ligo World Assembly say their aim is to bind all religions into one religious assembly in order to foster greater cooperation, collaboration, and understanding, believing there is more that unites the great faith traditions than divides them. A noble goal indeed, Connie, said a purple-haired, well-makeup news personality wearing a purple sequins jacket who went by the stage name Max Bacchus, a throwback to the Roman god of entertainment which was appropriate since the man was essentially the face of Solterra propaganda. With beaming wide eyes a sharp shade of green and a mouth wide with bright white teeth, the man continued, Now what's that on the banner behind the dais? It looks like a bird for crying out loud. You're right Max, it is. Well sort of, replied the equally well-makeup perky blonde-haired correspondent. It is known as a phoenix, an ancient bird that rises from the ashes in 500-year cycles. The organizers of this new religious order claim their mutual unity and harmonization is seeking to usher in the next cycle, in the rebirth of religious order. Fascinating, Bacchus said to a hologram of the correspondent standing to his left, before pivoting to the camera, and the image fading to nothing. Connie Curry is standing by as this exciting story develops. We will bring you all the details of the announcement, as well as analysis, right after this short break. For humanity. The screen transitioned into a commercial featuring laundry detergent. Alexander lost interest, consumed by this development, and confused by his former classmate Apollos's involvement. What the heck are you playing at, he wondered. A knock at the door interrupted Alexander's disbelief. Yes. Come in. The door whooshed open on command, and Zachariah rushed in. Father Air sorry. He was panting, clearly having rushed from the cathedral next door. Alexander held up a hand and twisted his face in confusion. Zachariah slowed down. What's going on? You look like you've run a bloody marathon. Someone's here, sir. He glanced behind him before leaning forward and whispering, A courier father. Alexander glanced over Zachariah's shoulder to catch a glimpse of the unexpected visitor. A courier? He swallowed and nodded. Says he's from the ministerium. Alexander stepped back, face falling at the mention of the Ichthus Order. Normally, the order of priests, bishops and cardinals throughout the worldwide church sent digitally encrypted messages when it had business at hand. Couriers were rare, especially if they bore a parchment letter, for Solterra had severely restricted the production of paper since the reckoning. Did he say anything? Alexander asked in a hushed rush. Anything at all about his business? No. In fact, I didn't even see nobody come in. Slipped in and stood in the shadows behind the altar when I was finishing up mopping the floor. Nearly died of a heart attack, I did, when he announced himself and asked for you. Alexander's mind swam with confusion and concern. If the ministerium was sending a courier by silence and shadow, the matter must be grave. He took in a breath and nodded. All right, I'll be out in a minute. Where is he now? I put him in your study and locked the door. He insisted. It was the only way for him to go undetected with noon mass starting soon. Alexander put his hand on Zachariah's shoulder, a tremor working its way back and forth underneath his large hand. You did good. It'll be fine I'm sure. Zachariah relaxed slightly at his encouragement. The man left and Father Zaruk went to his bedroom to change his pants, 
wondering what terror had befallen Ichthus to require such subterfuge. Chapter 3 The solid walnut door was locked tight when Alexander tried turning the aged burnished bronze handle to his study. He huffed and then knocked three short bursts, paused and then two more to provide the ancient signal of the Fidelium, the Keepers of the Faith, alerting whoever was inside that a friend was at hand and trying to gain access to their own office. He heard the lock click, then a shuffling of feet beyond. He hesitated, apprehensive about what he would find on the other side. Then he grabbed the handle and turned it, sliding in to discover his heavy brown curtains drawn across the large window overlooking the bluff. The darkness was almost as suffocating as the stale humid air and musty vintage tomes lining his walls. Movement caught his eye from the corner of the room, a figure hiding in the corner between the curtain and a bookcase of dark wood. Father Zaruk, the figure asked stepping out from the shadows, face hidden by a dark mask, a heavy brown cloak pulled high. Alexander froze, his mouth went dry. He stole a glance around the rest of the cramped space, spotting nothing but piles of books spilling to the floor, and finding no other intruders. He was tall and packed enough lean muscle to handle the intruder, and he flexed his hands into fists in case the moment called for action. I am he, he managed. And you are. What is the meaning of this? Did anyone see you? The cloaked figure whispered, rushing past him to secure the lock again. Did anyone see me? Alexander asked in annoyance. It's my office, who cares if someone blooming saw me? Who else knows about my visit? The masked figure said lowly, back still turned toward the priest. My assistant Zachariah, that is it. What's this about? Who are you, sir? Tara Rodriguez, she said, turning around, with ministerium security. The Fidelium sent me bearing a message from an old friend. Tara? Forgive me, but I didn't expect a woman. Alexander moved to his old wooden desk and flopped down into a well-worn leather chair that groaned in response to Father Zaruk's tall muscular frame. Please sit. What message does the Fidelium desire me to receive, that they send a masked woman? I thought I already paid my dues for the year. Tara pulled back her hood and removed the mask, not uncommon for women in those parts, revealing a small round face with high cheekbones and penetrating dark brown Latin eyes beneath close-cropped black hair. I'm afraid their concern is far bigger than unpaid dues, father. She placed an envelope sealed with crimson wax stamped with the seal bearing the initials FJF. Father Jim. Alexander leaned back in his chair and brought a hand up to his chin wondering why his mentor, godfather, and former best friend of his own father was going to such lengths to send him a message. One written on and sealed in parchment, no less. He hesitated to pick it up, staring at it with a mixture of apprehension and curiosity. Father, I don't know what is in that envelope, Tara interrupted, but I suggest you open it. I'm instructed to help you do whatever that envelope requires. He eyed her, hand-stroking his stubbled chin. What are you, some sort of spy? An assassin. I'm help, she said curtly, staring back with fixed, unmoving eyes. A shudder ran up Alexander's spine, chased by a feeling of dread. His eyes fell to the envelope before he picked it up, touching the wax seal and tracing the middle J. What's going on, Padre? He turned over the heavy cream parchment, broke the seal, and took out a piece of folded paper tucked inside, the scent of bergamot and tobacco escaping. A smile spread across his face, the memory of sipping Earl Grey tea and smoking cigars in Father Ferraro's study in Oxford surfacing and offering him relief. He scanned the letter quickly. My dearest Alex. By now you've met your new friend, Tara Rodriguez. 
if you trust me with your life, trust her just the same. You will need her for what I need from you. The Order has sent out similar notices to a handful of Fidelium members to gather for a secret conclave in Byzantium, at the site of the first of its kind. Ichthus is facing a new threat of grave consequence and must assemble on the morrow to address it. By the time you receive this note, forces beyond us will have set into motion a series of events announcing a new religious order, Pan-Ligo World Assembly. This entity represents the strongest threat the Church has faced in half a millennium, a threat that demands a response, especially to our fallen brethren. Hence the hastily assembled meeting. There are talks of apostasy, and more. We need you. Ichthus needs you. I need you. No one can know about this meeting, not even Zachariah. Please make haste and burn this notice at once. Father Jim. Alexander glanced at Tara from just above the cream parchment, her face still steely and transfixed. He caught himself holding his breath, his lungs beginning to ache from the lack of oxygen. He inhaled sharply and sighed, reaching for the lighter near the cigar humidor sitting on his desk. He lit Father Jim's note setting it next to his chair on the stone tile floor. The foreign smell of burning paper delighted his senses as it curled upwards, the flaming fingers eating away any traces of the urgent request. He snapped the lighter closed and leaned back in his chair, its back creaking in protest. Well, Tara asked, forehead wrinkled upward and eyes opened in wonderment. He wants me to trust you, Alexander said staring back. Trust me. With what? With my life. The order has called a meeting in Byzantium, and apparently, you're my chaperone. The priest stood, grabbed his leather satchel off his desk and began throwing items from his office into it, his slate, his Bible and his prayer book. She cleared her throat and folded her arms as Alexander continued rushing around his office. Byzantium. Care to be more specific considering that's like, all of East Asiatica and Arabia Persia. At the sight of the first of its kind, he said, continuing to pack. The sight of the first of its kind? All right Mr. Cryptic, you gotta give me more here if this whole chaperoning relationship is going to work. Alexander put his bulging bag down in a huff. Yes, the site of the first of its kind. The first conclave of Ichthus happened nearly 2,000 years ago outside Constantinople. The first council of Nicaea. Talk about making a statement with your secret meeting location, Tara mumbled. What did the rest of the letter say? He stopped packing again, pausing to consider whether he could trust this unknown stranger. Hello. The Fidelium sent me for a reason, she said, planting her arms at her hips. They don't send people like me on a whim. So you're gonna have to trust me. Because father, I'm all you've got for wherever and why ever we're going. Did you watch the news today? Alexander said, relenting. Know what happened? Another bombing? Have you heard rumors of something called Pan-Ligo World Assembly? Pan-Ligo? No. What's that? Apparently a new religious order, an order to end all orders. Several prominent leaders within the dominant religious faiths got together on One World News to announce their disassociation with their respective faiths to build a new one called Pan-Ligo. It's the craziest thing I heard all year. That doesn't make any sense. So what, the Mohammedan Ayatollah and the Israelite high priest are now buddy-buddy, Tara asked in confusion. Apparently. But that's not all. Why? What's that? Members of our own ministerium were there. What? Tara said in drawn-out disgust. Yeah. 
What's worse, one of my former classmates from seminary was there. Apollos Nikolai. Apollos, Tara said, spitting out the name. Doesn't surprise me in the least. That Germanian bishop went off the deep end months ago. Heretic as far as I'm concerned. She turned her head and literally spat. You just spat on my floor, Alexander said as he searched for the landing zone. That guy is a snake. Technically he's our snake. And we need to make haste, because we're supposed to join the Fidelium tomorrow. Alexander turned off the lamp on his desk and walked over to close the blinds behind his drawn curtains. Hey listen, Tara said, grabbing Alexander's arm as he began to walk toward the door. I hear you're friends with the guy, Apollos. Was friends with the guy. That was a while ago. A few years ago, from what I hear. Can I ask what happened? He stared through Tara, eyes squinted and lips pursed. Let's just say we had a falling out. He went his way, I went mine. He turned toward the door from centuries past and heaved it open. We best not miss the last transport call if we're going to make it in time. Tara stood, arms folded, as Alexander left her. She sighed, not accustomed to following behind free will protectees. She had been personally tapped by Cardinal James Ferraro, as he was known within the Fidelium, a small some would say secret sect within the Ministerium of Ichthus Hierarchy, to find, retrieve, and protect Father Zaruk. The finding part was easy, as well as the retrieval part surprisingly. When she got the assignment she had anticipated the protect part would be as well, thinking the job would be an easy financial get. After all, who would harm a priest? But after news of Pan Ligo and rumors of more bombings on the way, now she wasn't so sure. She caught up to Alexander as he entered the Great Hall. Father, she called out as he was about to speak with Zachariah. Can I have a word? She could sense him roll his eyes as she saw his shoulders drop. He shuffled over to her with a questioning look. What? I wanted to know what you were going to tell your assistant. Cardinal Ferraro said that under no circumstances could we tell anyone where we were going. He's my assistant. I can't lie to him. What do I tell him? The truth. That you've been called away on urgent business and will be gone a few days. Leave it at that. Alexander paused, tapping his shoe on the floor. All right, wait here. He walked over to a confused Zachariah, who kept looking at Tara with suspicion standing a few feet away. He said, she works for the Fidelium. Apparently, I've been summoned and I need to leave for a few days. Summoned? Why? Where are you going? Zachariah asked with furrowed brow, eyes darting back to Tara with more suspicion. Relax, Alexander said, putting his hand on his assistant's shoulder. Just some business I need to take care of. Which means you need to fill in for Thursday Mass while I'm away. And depending how long this takes, you may need to take care of Sunday as well. This revelation seemed to unnerve young Zachariah more than the uninvited guest. He hadn't led Mass on his own before, and certainly not an entire service. He looked down at the floor and began rubbing his hands together. Alexander laughed. You're not nervous, are you, Zach? You'll be fine. You've seen me do it a hundred times. It's one thing to see you do it, another to do it. Oh bother. Don't worry you'll be fine. Alexander looked at Tara and motioned for her to come along. He started walking toward the small chapel to exit through the back. If you need me feel free to call, he said before leaving. The two reached his parish home, the door whooshing open as they arrived. 
Wait here while I get some things, Alexander instructed. He set his satchel on his dining room table, on his way to his bedroom. Once inside, he headed for his bathroom, opening the medicine cabinet with purpose. He grabbed an unmarked box the size of a packet of gum and released the lid. Thin ribbons of fluorescent translucent wafers were stacked inside. On the street, the synthetic narcotics that went for a few Republic Merca credits a pop had been crudely nicknamed hosts, after the thin unleavened wafers that served as the memory marker of Christ's body, broken on the cross for the sins of the world. Narco wafers were what they were actually called on the street, going for less than the packet of gum they mimicked. Though illegal, the Tripolitanian streets were flooded with them, servicing a ready market for the relief they brought upon contact with saliva. One even priests apparently frequented. Alexander cursed himself for his weakness, not to mention his seeming sacrilege at imbibing from something so crudely associated with the Eucharist. But he didn't care. He needed a fix. So he peeled one off and set it in his large hand. He paused, then peeled off one more before snapping the case closed. He took a deep breath and looked into the mirror. A tremor overtook his clenched hand as he stared at himself. He could see his eyebrow twitching from the weight of the morning. Anxiety had run in his family. But his father didn't believe in medicating it. Said a Christian didn't need anything but prayer and the Holy Spirit to find relief. Unfortunately, that didn't work for his mother, who overdosed on pain medication after a strong bout of depression just before university. Since his mother's death, the feeling of helplessness and insecurity had strengthened its resolve, sending him to secretly self-medicate when he started his seminary graduate work at Oxford. Not often, but enough that he knew where to find it on the street when he needed to. Mental health was a strict requirement for ministerial service, and any revelations of his severe crippling condition would have invalidated his chances of ordination, much less parish life. Hiding his illness from his father had been easy. Hiding it from Father Jim and others had been a challenge Alexander had learned to navigate through more underworldly means. Means that probably would have invalidated his future in ministry more than his mental illness itself. Alexander pressed the tabs against his tongue and closed his eyes, the narcotic release instant, the relief more than welcomed as his mind filled with tingling clarity. He threw the tiny box in a weekend bag, along with a few days' worth of clothes. He hoped he wouldn't be gone longer than that, but his gut told him otherwise. Barnabas, I'm leaving for a few days, he shouted, as he snatched his satchel off the dining room table. And what pray tell do you want me to do about that? The AI replied. Lock up and keep away the robbers you mouthy contraption. No need to get snippy with me, Father Zaruk. Is everything all right? The door whooshed open. Tara walked through but Alexander paused to consider the question in the threshold. I hope so, Barnabas, he said before stepping out into the emerging humid afternoon, his sinuses feeling surprisingly better. The door whooshed close behind him as he and his new partner hustled across the hardened beige dirt that held the secrets of the faith he was leaving to protect. Chapter 4 How did my life come to this? Alexander Zaruk and Tara Rodriguez rode silently in the AI humanoid magna car through the winding barren Tripolitanian countryside, on toward the provincial capital of Tripoli, the landscape outside running by in a topi blur. He stared outside contemplating how a small-town priest had been fingered by a former professor through a secret agent of the ministerium, for Lord only knew what. All he knew was what Cardinal James Ferraro had written in that blasted note Tara delivered, 
which even she didn't fully understand. A handful of the Fidelium, the keepers of the faith, were summoned by a similar call, as he had received, to a secret conclave in Nicaea to deal with the gravest of threats against Ichthus, because of a new religious order that had formed, representing the strongest threat the church had faced in half a millennium, where charges of apostasy and heresy were being bandied about, and Father Jim wanted him in on the action. But why? He was the least qualified, especially since his very own father had been excommunicated from the ministerium, a former priest fingered as a heretic. What could he offer that the others couldn't? He held no special knowledge, no special influence or specialty within the Christian faith. He was but a no-name provincial priest in some backwater ultramodern town the Republic paid barely any attention to. Tara let out a cough next to him, the jerk of her body throwing up the scent of lavender and vanilla, and sending his heart fluttering at the scent. Not only at the presence of the beautiful woman sitting next to him, but also at what she meant. Danger, subterfuge, clandestine ecclesiastical operations with no uncertain doom attached to it. What the heck was he getting himself into? The plan was to board a deep submergence vehicle for their journey across the Mediterranean toward the ancient town of Istanbul, now Byzantium, where they would grab a cab for Iznik, the former ancient Nicaea where Father Jim had wanted to meet. That was the plan anyway. But anything could happen. Especially after the way the day had begun, with the unnerving presence of the Republic tracker drone buzzing his parish church. At least the ride was smooth, the magna pavement proving that Solterra Republic's investments weren't a total waste. While the Roman Empire had blanketed the known world with brick roads, one of the first initiatives Solterra undertook was a massive reconstruction project, replacing many of the simple asphalt and concrete thoroughfares across the Republic with superconducting roads built for ultramodernism and introducing cars that floated above the ground and moved without friction. Like most personal-sized vehicles of the era, Theirs was a small magnacraft driven by an AI humanoid along that stretch of magnetized blacktop courtesy of the Republic. A smile played across his face as they continued zooming along in silence. It still felt like science fiction to Alexander even as they trundled along the road, along with other magnacrafts of various sizes. But such was life in an age of Solterra's triple promises, peace, prosperity and progress, all for humanity as the Republic mantra went. He just hoped the tripart Christian virtues of faith, hope and love were close at hand. Because where they were going and what they were about to face, they needed all three in spades. Soon the humanoid brought them to the deep submergence vehicle station on the northern tip of Elkibulana. Alexander's stomach churned with nervous dread at the thought of the rough undersea road ahead, but he didn't have a choice. The DSV was the primary mass transit option post-reckoning the dividing line in world history after the world broke from cataclysmic climate change and relentless war. Planes had been abandoned for a century after the world's climate broke from too much CO2, and the oil reserves finally depleted. That was Solterra's official story, anyway. Discerning minds thought it was more about controlling how people moved about the Republic through carefully curated transportation access points than anything to do with power or pollution. Such was life under the watchful eye of Solterra, all for humanity of course. Terra bought two tickets for Byzantium, while Alexander suspiciously eyed the hundreds of people crowding the city seaport, near a fountain, undulating in rotating shades of red, the light mingling with the blue of the ocean, gleaming above through reinforced polycarbonate glass. Early evening commuters retiring for home, tourists between DSV stops, 
moms with after-school kids in tow, mingled together along with Solterra humanoids keeping guard, and others scampering off to complete their tasks assigned to them by the Republic. He also eyed his new companion, noticing her curved features accentuated by her tight-fitting black polyester outfit, across the way at the ticket booth. His ancient profession generally still frowned upon priests marrying, men and women alike, though that hadn't stopped his father from marrying his mother. The only bride they were to have was the church, the Bride of Christ. Entertaining the thought of another was something Alexander had considered from time to time, but not seriously. Perhaps Tara could change his mind. A shiver ran down his spine as a pair of humanoid enforcers hustled past, the AI human lookalikes that did the Republic's bidding. Their androgynous faces neither man nor woman were set hard against something in the near distance, and massive arms flexing for business, each bearing a Republic-issued neutralizer rifle. Alexander bowed his head low, trying to avert their attention, worry worming its way through his belly at what he feared might unfold if they noticed him looking their way, or sensed any change in his body temperature or his heart rate picking up pace, or any number of other measurements humanoids used as indications of pre-crime or thought-crime or... His head snapped up at the sound of screams echoing off the vaulted ceiling of polished steel and reinforced glass. Sucking in a breath, he scanned the cavernous seaport, the nameless bodies of the polis, human and humanoid alike, flowing past him in a hustling blur, all trying to avoid the same fate of whatever those humanoid enforcers were after. Then he saw it. The frantic cries were coming from a stout man with a shaved head not twenty feet away. The two humanoids had grabbed him by both arms and pinned him down hard with a mechanical grip. The man was leaning back toward the polished tile floor with defiant purpose, resisting their advance with more shouts in a foreign tongue, but it was no use. The enforcers, built with precision to exact ultimate control, dragged the man with ease through the crowd of onlookers who paid him not a single glance at his pleas for help. Alexander took a breath and stood, raking a shaking hand through his thick wavy black hair in search of Terra. He hated crowds as much as he hated DSV travel. Parish life along the quiet bluffs of Tripolitania, far outside the ultramodern city, was much more his pace. And that wasn't even touching on the incident he'd heard tales of from time to time. The Republic bringing down the hammer in seemingly random ways to wring their peace and prosperity and progress from the polis. But this, twenty feet away, and moments before they were supposed to dart off in secret from forces coalescing against the church, it was most unnerving. A portent of the dangers of the Republic that laid nascent, ready to be marshaled against him even, Alexander Zaruk, at a moment's notice. A hand reached instinctively for the packet of narco-wafers nestled in a pocket on his thobe, the traditional garb of his people. White robe and pants. If he could just press one of those transparent greenish-blue wafers of synthetic narcotics against his tongue, perhaps he could manage. There it was. Pulling it out and readying the top for quick relief, he quickly thumbed out a paper-thin wafer the size of a stick of gum and pressed it against his tongue. It instantly dissolved, the taste of peppermint registering along his synapses first, followed by the feeling of weightlessness and fresh air, his consciousness instantly expanding and head feeling like it was as light as a balloon. Suddenly, through a part in the shuffling crowd, Tara emerged bearing a grin and two tickets. He quickly stuffed the packet back into his pocket, a smile easily playing across his face now. She walked over, handing Alexander his pass. We board in an hour. And here I forgot to give you this. She handed him a small thick packet. Alexander furrowed his brow and flipped open the envelope flap. What's this? he asked, pulling out a sheet of folded plastic. 
our cover. He unfolded it, finding information digitally inscribed on its face. It read, Ajib al-Zarawi from Tripoli, married to Tahani al-Zarawi. Accompanying the line was a short bio. At the bottom of the packet sat a subcutaneous injector and a pair of contact lenses. The weightlessness and complete escape from the moment that Narcowafer offered was short-lived. What is this? He said again in a panicked whisper, stuffing the envelope in his jacket and glancing around the vast space for fear that more Republic humanoids were lurking. Tara huffed and glanced around. It's a precaution. Precaution? We don't know if anyone has been alerted to the conclave. And if anyone is watching, they'll be watching for you, the regional bishop of Tripolitania. Alexander's mind immediately jumped to the tracker drone that circled his parish. His panic must have registered. What's wrong? Why, what do you mean? Tara folded her arms. That look. What aren't you telling me? Alexander shifted his gaze from the distance to his companion. Then he took a breath and explained. I didn't think to mention it before, but a tracker buzzed my parish after my morning prayer, shortly before we met in my study. She stepped closer, concern etched on her face. Was it Solterra? He raked a hand through his hair again, looking back toward where the stout man had been hauled away. He took a breath then said, I think so. It was black, round, and I heard the familiar pulsating whirl. She frowned, then glanced behind her and around the station. Then you definitely need this cover, father. She jabbed at his jacket, pressing the envelope with her finger. But lying and deception. And on my way to a conclave of the Fidelium? I prefer to call it cloaking. We need to travel undetected. It's all been arranged. The Divinet record has been altered. You are Ajib, an engineer en route to business in Arabia, Persia. This is a bad idea, Alexander hissed. Does Father Jim know about this? Yes. It was his idea, actually. Now give me your index finger and give me back that envelope. We don't have time to second guess. We need to move. What about my other travel chip? Alexander asked, holding up his finger while Terra glanced around the bustling seaport. Inside was what every member of the Solterra Polis had, a subcutaneous chip with travel credentials. It's how anyone got anywhere in the Republic. Terra explained. The electromagnetic force field in this new chip is more powerful than your previous model. It will render it inert. Alexander huffed, rubbing his finger. That's comforting. Hope it doesn't render my finger inert. Or my life because if I'm discovered subverting the Republic, off to a reprogramming camp for me. Stop your whining and hold steady. Tara held his long finger and positioned the small injector over the center of his print that swirled to a dot. She glanced over her shoulder, then over Alexander's before a barely audible shik sounded as the injector sent the microscopic chip under his skin. He winced and rubbed it. He quickly popped in the contact lenses with new retinal information, hoping this plot Tara and Father Jim had cooked up together wouldn't spiral into a heaping pile of shattered glass and stone. The pair joined the other travelers, shuffling through the security queue. As they snaked their way toward the checkpoint, Alexander quickly crammed for his debut subverting the Republic, reading and committing the new details of his fabricated identity to memory. His fingers began to stain the thin plastic with moisture as they drew closer to the checkpoint. He impulsively reached for his pocket holding his narco wafers again, but stopped when he remembered he wasn't alone. 
anxiety pulsed through his veins, his head feeling light and lungs barely finding breath. He put away the bio and concentrated on regulating his body, closing his eyes and breathing slow, deep breaths, the world of chrome and glass and the held-at-bay seawater above him swirling now. He knew if he didn't get his body under control, the Solterra humanoid ahead would pick up the sure sign marks of deceptions, triggering a situation he'd like to avoid. Are you okay, dear? Tara said loudly as they reached the front. I know how much you hate deep-sea travel. She wrapped an arm around Alexander's waist, playing the part of a concerned wife before the awaiting audience of security personnel. Alexander picked up on her ploy and played along. Clearing his throat he replied, Yes dear. But I'll be fine. He hesitated, then kissed her on the cheek. For the sake of their mission, of course. He smiled awkwardly and stepped over to a just open checkpoint, his doting wife in tow. Finger and eyes, the plump, balding, grimacing transportation safety agent with a surprisingly robust mustache commanded, giving the familiar opening refrain to sea travel. The agent looked more human the last time he remembered. The Republic must have put in for an upgrade. Alexander hesitated for a moment, then positioned his right finger on the sensor while staring into the eyes of the humanoid guard. The unit measured not only his pupils against the unique identifying marks in the Divinet database, but also indicators of deception, like pupil dilation and temperature. He held his breath, then promptly began breathing again when he wondered if it would raise a red flag. The seconds ticked by as he stood face to face with the balding still humanoid, its eyes lifeless, and its doughy unmoving silicone skin sporting day-old graying stubble. Finally, something happened. But not at all what Alexander expected. Something from his recent nightmares. The humanoid sprang to its feet, if you can call them that. Two enforcers joined it, appearing from the margins, and this time their faces masked by those hideous charcoal visors shaped like the face of the praying mantises that roamed his parish yard. Come with me, the humanoid barked. Alexander's head swam from the turn, the voice of Terra's protests garbling in a miasma of fear and indecision. The two enforcers suddenly reaching for their snub-nosed neutralizers strapped to their hips made the decision for him. He swallowed hard then said, All right, I'll go. Then off he went, not looking back while Terra protested. He was on his own with this one. Chapter 5 Entering through a door concealed behind a massive mirror that stretched the height of the terminal, Alexander was searched. Then patted down for weapons most likely, hands reaching into his pockets, then shimmying close to the dossier Terra had given him that was hiding on the inside of this cloak. They let it be, and soon he was heading down a long dimly lit corridor. The back of the terminal was dirtier than Alexander expected. And smelled far sweeter. Despite the dust and dirt caked in the crevices where the floor met the wall, and despite the grimy-looking white walls that were more an off-white cream, the place had a familiar smell to it that took him back to early young adulthood, which Alexander immediately identified. Shisha tobacco, smoked in a hookah water pipe common to his people. Alexander couldn't help but grin as he was led deeper into the belly of the seaport, the walls closing in on him and winding in a way that made his head spin even as he was led by the plump, pasty humanoid and menacing enforcer into no uncertain doom. Perhaps it was the narco-wafer still massaging his consciousness, soothing it into a slumber that normally would have been bucking something wild at the ratcheting anxiety. Perhaps it was the memory of him getting hammered after graduating from university with Sasha Pavlovich, his roommate who had just been featured on One World News discovering time travel. 
the latter was a sweet memory for sure, the pair having been joined together in an Oxford dormitory by chance. Or providential intervention, depending on your beliefs. His memory was interrupted by a hard jab in the back. The enforcer told him to pick up the pace, but he was still fixed on the memory sparked by the sweet yet spicy smelling shisha from farther behind. Through four years slogging it through Oxford together, Alexander studying to be a priest, Sasha a physicist, his Ukrainsky friend suggested they should celebrate their graduation on Britannia's southern coast in a rented bungalow in what was left of Sussex. Most of the poor Channelside province had been submerged under the English Channel, a name held over from centuries ago. Yet Sasha had pulled through with the rental, bringing along enough shisha and Stoliknaya vodka to satisfy them both for a month. It was a brief two-day respite but it was still heaven, the pair staying out late and sleeping in even later, greeting the day with mimosas and then mojitas, and then the shisha and Stoliknaya Sasha had brought along. They were kings facing an uncertain future not barely a decade, and some change past the great reckoning that realigned the world, and formed the one world Solterra Republic. Those were sweet times, magical times. When life was simpler, less threatened, less fraught with political baggage and intrigue. Alexander caught another whiff of the sweet spicy shisha, wishing to return to Sussex with his pal Sasha. Right before he was shoved into a tiny six-and-a-half-meter-squared room with a stout chrome table, gleaming under bright LED lights, in a mirrored room that reminded him of a funhouse he had visited once on an overseas trip to Americana as a child. Sit, plump pasty humanoid barked, lurching toward a chair opposite the one he pointed at with a stiff appendage. Alexander didn't consider it an arm, as he didn't believe the humanoids were anything resembling humans they were patterned after. An arm belonged to a human, an appendage to a humanoid. Simple as that. Though he probably shouldn't carry that perspective into the interrogation room. A rough hand on his shoulder from the enforcer behind shoved Alexander into his chair, putting an exclamation on that one. The enforcer yanked his bag from him and clomped to the door. Alexander sat stiffly, working the pain from his shoulder after being so rudely handled. Sitting across from him now, plump pasty humanoid glared at Alexander with hollow eyes, nothing in them but silicone and an endless string of ones and zeros. In that moment, the humanoid Icy sprang to mind. Named after the artificial intelligence acronym mashed up with the first two letters of the Arabic word for boy, the AI young, man had wandered into his parish seeking salvation from his sins through Jesus Christ. It was the oddest thing, he had never contemplated such a thing especially given his robust view of human nature that had been drilled into him by Father Jim, and the very low view of humanoids. His graduate studies in the priesthood certainly hadn't prepared him for such a thing. Even now, Alexander searched for a soul in the moments between that glare from plump pasty humanoid and the interrogation that was to come. He still came up empty. What is your name, it? He. Still didn't know about their classification, said now or never. And in reality, do or die. Alexander didn't swallow, and he didn't miss a beat. He replied, Ajib al-Zarawi. Where are you from? Tripoli. Where are you going? Byzantium. Plump pasty humanoid raised a brow. In Arabia, Persia. Alexander swallowed now. That's right. Then he pushed it a little. Is that unusual? No reason his interrogator should have all the fun. He didn't take the bait. For what reason? Business, Alexander replied. 
What kind of business? He didn't blink. Tried not to widen his eyes either, because his business that had been listed on that dossier Tara had handed him wasn't registering. So he made one up. Latex. There went that brow again. Latex? Alexander nodded, adding, imports and exports. He didn't know why in the slightest, but something about it rang true. Like something he had read or watched, probably some late-night show at university in the dormitory with Sasha. You're a latex salesman, plump pasty humanoid said with an incredulous edge. He nodded, saying nothing more. Importing or exporting it? Good question. Importing or exporting it? Again he didn't blink, didn't change the shape of his eyes or position of his gaze. But panic was rising higher to the surface now than ever. This was getting too much. He wasn't a born storyteller. Which was it? Importing or exporting? He hadn't the slightest clue. So he went with both. Both? The humanoid leaned back and crossed his arms, it's? He was still at a loss how to think about his kind, assessing him in silence as he played with his generous mustache. Probably running his answers through some algorithmic program to check for tells, anything that would flag as falsehood in the vastness of the Republic's Divinet data. But he said nothing more on the subject. Instead he leaned forward, putting his elbows on the chrome table. Continuing he said, and this person you were with, this. He trailed off, as if searching for something within its database. Tahani al-Zarawi, Alexander offered, reaching into his own memory bank. My wife. He felt like his face and eyes and brows and hands and legs, every fiber of his being was telling on him, broadcasting that everything about this story was a complete fabrication. Not good. You seem jumpy. Alexander tried his best to stay his eyes, but they leapt at the suggestion. He chuckled. No I'm fine. No you are. You're jumpy. No I'm not, he countered, realizing how defensive he sounded. Then why is your leg rattling under the table? Now Alexander sucked in a startled breath. Couldn't help it. Felt he'd just been completely exposed. And by an agent of the Republic. He swallowed hard, his mouth tasting sour and feeling raw, like his hometown sand. Sir, he said, regaining control of his eye contact. I would imagine if you yourself were plucked from a line by a Solterra agent, ripped away from your wife by an enforcer, no less, I would assume you would have a similar reaction. He paused, taking a breath and trying to add a smile. It was too weak to manage any goodwill, he figured. He continued, so I would ask your forgiveness for the nervous energy after a rather fraught encounter with the Republic. One I am happy to oblige, for humanity of course. Plump pasty humanoid frowned, its mustache falling with it. Perhaps. It took a beat, then exclaimed, especially carting these around through the terminal. The humanoid slapped down a massive palm on the table. Alexander jumped, surprised at the show of force. The enforcer guard even stirred at the gesture, but remained at his post. When he removed it, Alexander sucked in a startled breath at what was left resting on the polished chrome. His narco wafer packet. Suddenly this whole ordeal became clear. He was both relieved and panicked at the turn. All of this is for the narco-wafers, Alexander asked, incredulous that the humanoid had gone through all the drama for a packet of synthetic narcotics. And also skeptical. This wasn't adding up. The humanoid folded its, his, appendages and huffed, raising his brow in irritation and nodding toward the packet.
Well, they are illegal in the Republic. Really? I just thought that was for posterity's sake. That Solterra officially condemned the practice, but unofficially didn't give one marmoset, if the polis used. The humanoid stiffened before slamming a fist down on the chrome table again, sending a jolt through Alexander. The humanoid fixed him with cold dead eyes that carried a spark of, was that anger, concern even? It was surprising, whatever it was, unnerving even, to see some form of intimate connection and emotional resonance registering on the face of the silicone shell, he had assumed, could muster up not a milliliter of anything resembling emotion. The patron, he grunted, does not look kindly on users. Capital U. The patron or you, buddy. Alexander didn't say that, of course. Instead, he dropped his head and nodded solemnly. I understand. Which isn't too far off before the other you word, if you get my drift. Alexander snapped his head up, his mouth remaining where it was, his eyes widening before blinking them rapidly with recognition. He swallowed hard. Yes, he did. Unfit was what the humanoid was meaning, the designation for the men and women whom Solterra deemed either a burden or menace on society. All in the interest of peace and prosperity and progress, for humanity. Last thing you wanted was to be declared an unfit, for that meant a swift exit to a reprogramming camp, and that meant nothing good. Before Alexander could respond, plump pasty humanoid continued, You know, my original sponsor had been a user. What? Alexander asked, furrowing his brow and not understanding. My sponsor. The humanoid chucked the packet of narco wafers at Alexander's chest. He had been a user. He jolted at the sudden aggressive act, surprised at the humanoid's self-confession. But intrigued all the same. Sponsors were actual humans who were responsible for stewarding, that is a good way of putting it, more than caring for, their adoptees. They received fresh human AI lookalikes from the Republic, in order to steward them to full inclusion in the Republic. Sort of like a pet from a humane society. They would show their sponsored humanoids the ropes of what it meant to be human, before introducing them, into the polis of general society. It ensured a cohesive integration between the human population and growing automaton population of humanoids, avoiding the messy, dystopian outcomes of some of the more doomsday sci-fi novels of the past century. So far so good too. The AI apocalypse hadn't quite turned out the way the masters of science fiction had envisioned. Thank the Lord for that. To see the fruits of those efforts now opening up to him though, it was a surreal moment for Alexander. Clearly the humanoid had been affected at some level by his sponsor's narco-wafer usage, and in the not-so-good sort of way. Probably the really bad, even violent sort of way. Which Alexander understood all too well. His father, Martin Zaruk, had been a violent drunk at times, especially on the other side of his mother's suicide after years of depression. It was no surprise then that Alexander himself had struggled with substance abuse, though not in the aggressive sort of way as his father. Even then he could understand, empathize with the humanoid even, given his own story. Given his own experience with the violence that often accompanies addiction. Plump pasty humanoid stared at him with those hollow eyes that seemed a bit more lifelike after the self-confession. After the human-like connection even that had been wrought through it. Alexander cleared his throat and swallowed. It would take a delicate touch to navigate out of this one. He offered a smile then started, I understand, I really do. My own sponsor if you will, my father was a drunk. This seemed to give his interrogator pause, 
the humanoid stiffening and face softening a bit. And when he had too much to drink, let's just say my night wasn't a pleasant one. Or the next morning, or day for that matter. Much of it began after my mother's death. Her, Alexander swallowed, trying to bring himself to voice the truth of it. Her suicide. She had a long struggle with mental illness, which unfortunately passed along to me. He nodded toward the packet of narco-wafers, still resting on the chrome table. The humanoid noted the gesture and nodded, seemingly with understanding. So you see, my own addiction as you referenced, follows in the steps of my own parents. Whether by nature or by nurture, I'm not quite sure. Regardless, I understand your position, and I've learned my lesson. The patron is right to ban such substances, and so are you. Right to call me out on my abuse. So I will change my ways, for humanity. Figuring that was enough of an explanation, a truthful one that just might mask the rest of his subterfuge, and hoping it was enough to get him out of this mess, Alexander sat back, fixing the humanoid with pleading eyes. His interrogator threw back the same eyes, though more assessing. And curiously sympathetic, if Alexander read them right. They were fixed on him, unblinking for what seemed like an eternity. Until the humanoid suddenly stood. And remarkably, he handed back Alexander's narco-wafers. For the road ahead, he said with something that looked like a wink. Alexander hesitated before reaching for them. Grasping them he stood and nodded. Thank you for your understanding. Have a good trip, Mr. Ajib. Plump pasty humanoid offered a quick smile before returning to his grimacing pose, hand outstretched and a surprising gesture. Alexander took it, the appendage cold and dead, feeling like a bag of flour. He forced a smile and nodded, giving it a shake. He'll see you out. The enforcer opened the door and shuffled to attention, handing him back his confiscated bag. Alexander took that as his cue to leave, not wanting to spend another minute under the watchful, interrogating eye of the Republic. Thanks again for joining the Religion and Fiction podcast, as well as the beginning adventures of Alexander Zarouk and all the others within the Ministerium and Resistance. Get all the details about the Kickstarter launching the science fiction epic in the show notes below. Be sure to follow the Kickstarter to get alerted once it launches in the following days. Until then, happy reading!